Welcome to the Advent Houston podcast. At Advent, our mission is to embrace, embody, and extend the grace of Jesus Christ to the Texas Medical Center, Rice University, and the surrounding neighborhood. We're glad that you're here with us today. This afternoon, we have another guest uh, preacher, um, is the uh, senior pastor at Christ the King Presbyterian, John Trapp. Uh, I had the privilege of meeting John actually uh, when I was 20 years old in my little sister's dorm room. Um, and uh, the, he, John was a freshman along with my sister at that time. And, uh, and so kind of from that point on, I think he was eating sour Skittles of something else that, uh, that I also deeply love. Um, and, uh, and John and I happened to, uh, to not only go to college together, we went to seminary together uh, and have a, a good and deep friendship and so glad to invite him here uh, to preach for us this evening. And so, uh, John, thanks for, thanks for coming. I forgot that's where we met. That's a great memory. <laughs> Y'all, um, it's so good to be with each of you um, today. Let's stand for the reading of God's word from the Gospel of John, chapter 4, verses 3 through 30. He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank it from himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water, drink the, or, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband for you've had five husbands and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. 
When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. The gospel of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated. Let's pray. Father, we do ask now that you would help us to know more of who you are and who you claim to be. We're quick to doubt that you're good or gracious, but in your kindness you have given us Jesus so that we might know more of what you are like. So by the power of your Holy Spirit, help us to see Jesus clearly now. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, I am from a small town in North Alabama, went to a really small high school, and because it was a small school, everyone was kind of all hands on deck for anything that was ever happening there, and we had a very small school theater program, and I'll never forget my senior year, our school play was Cinderella, and the whole community came out, I think maybe because our plays usually went poorly, and they just came to watch them crash and burn. Uh, But it was a packed house, and everyone was excited for Cinderella, and shockingly, the play was going really well until the very last scene, the climactic moment when Prince Charming is going to show up with the glass slipper to put it on Cinderella's foot. Cinderella is sweeping the floor, and she looks out the window, and she says, oh, there's Prince Charming, and she turns to the door for Prince Charming to enter, and he doesn't show up. No one walks through the door. And Cinderella's thinking quick on her feet. She says, oh, I think he just went to the neighbor's house. And she keeps sweeping again. And she's like, yeah, he's over there. He'll be, be, he's across the street. He'll be here soon. And she is on this stage, y'all, for like two minutes, which is in theater time, a long time to have to improvise a scene that you were not planning to improvise. And after that long 120 seconds, Prince Charming finally stumbled through the door to the shame of Cinderella and to the laughter of everyone in the crowd. And everyone just said that it ruined the play. And the reason I know everyone said that it ruined the play is because I was Prince Charming and everyone told me that I ruined the play. And I wish I had a good excuse for why I showed up late, but I just simply missed my cue and was not paying attention. And our theater teacher was running the light and couldn't come back and thump me on the back of the head. And it ruined the play. And that's what happens when you have a bad leading man. A bad leading man can ruin just about any story. And I think that the young lady who was playing Cinderella at our little school could very much identify with this Samaritan woman in this story because she knows what it's like to be alone, to be ashamed, to be afraid. And that's where this Samaritan woman finds herself, at a well. And for reasons that we'll talk about, she's ashamed and she's alone. She's had five failed leading men. And the one that she's with now is not her husband. She knows what it's like to be alone in her shame. And then up walks Jesus. Jesus comes into her picture. And today we're... This season, we are celebrating, today we're beginning the celebration of Advent, the coming of Christ. And I want you to see the kinds of people in this story that Jesus comes for. The kinds of people that Jesus comes looking to find. 
So three points for you this morning, or this afternoon, sorry. First, who is she? Second, Jesus' response to her. And third, so what? Who is she? How does Jesus respond to her? So what? All right, let's go. First, who's this woman? I want you to know that she is the last person in the world that the disciples would expect her to, that would expect Jesus to be speaking to for a number of reasons, for racial reasons, for cultural reasons, for moral reasons. So let's talk about those reasons for a second. First off, racial reasons. There, there is racial tension that goes back centuries before this story between Samaritans and Jews, all the way back in 721 BC, second Kings records in second Kings 17 verses 24, the Samaritan people who at one point were part of the Jewish nation disobeying God and intermarrying with five different nations. And the reason that God had told them not to do that is he knew that as they intermarried, they would also begin worshiping the gods of these other nations. And I do think that John is, he's noting that this woman has also had five husbands. She's like a Samaritan of Samaritans. Does that make sense? These five nations that have been intermarried with. And now she's married five different husbands. And John is trying to, he's trying to help us see that this woman would be viewed as, by other people as a, just the Samaritan of Samaritans. Samaritans were seen, in a sense, as traitors, as being unclean. Their relations were not good with Jesus' people. And, and the woman herself, is, she is very surprised that Jesus walks up and talks to her. Verse 9, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? So she's an outcast to the Jews, but not only that, she's an outcast to her own people. And we see this, we know this, by what we see in verse 6 of our text. She is getting water during the sixth hour. The Jewish people and really all ancient people in that time would have measured time by sunrise. So if she's getting water at the sixth hour of the day, that's six hours after sunrise, that would be noon, middle of the day. And in the first century, where there's no air conditioning, you're in a desert, arid climate, the time to get water would have been first thing in the morning. And it would have been a communal activity that all likely all the women in the community would have gone to the well together and she's not with them. She's there at a time that she knows no one else will be there at the middle of the day. And she's there because not only is she an outcast to the Jews, she's an outcast to her own people. She's a social outcast and it's not hard to imagine why. She's living in this small town and she has had five husbands and who knows all the gossip that is attached to those stories and now she's with a man who's not her husband and I bet you in a small town people probably knew that they probably knew that was part of her story and I want you to imagine what it's it's easy to kind of sterilize stories like this that maybe feel familiar if you've grown up around a church if you've heard story, this story before it's easy to sterilize it and not to imagine what it must have been like for her every single day walking to that well by herself to overhear the gossip about her that's maybe whispered a little bit too loudly as she passes by have you heard about her who she's with now 
She's the kind of person that you would be tempted not to talk to at your kids' meet and greet at the open house. She's the kind of person that you would avoid eye contact with and look and find a different friend to speak to. She is that kind of social pariah. She is an outcast. And she's alone at the well, and she's alone in her life, and she is, I think, a picture of all of us. She's a picture of all of us. The Apostle Paul describes each one of us this way in Romans 3.10. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside together, they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. That is outcast language. We are outcasts just like this woman, yet we are outcasts to God. Worthless, Paul says. Ones who do not seek for God. But we do seek for something just like this woman. This woman is seeking for something. That's why she's at the well and she's thirsty. And that's us. We are all thirsty like her, desperate for something to satisfy us. And wherever your hope is for satisfaction, whatever, whatever well you find yourself going to, that's where your heart is. It's what you worship. Verse 13, Jesus, this is why he addresses her thirst first and foremost in saying, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. That's, the pro- that's our problem with every other well that we go to in our lives. It leaves us still thirsty thirsty again. The problem with worshiping our possessions or success or what seems to be the case with this woman, even worshiping relationships, is that each one of them leave us empty and still thirsty just like this woman. And whatever your lowercase God is, which is, that's, that's what we're talking about here with this woman. She has, she has a, a God that she is worshiping. And all of us will worship something But whatever your lowercase God is, it will punish you. Listen to how David Foster Wallace describes this dynamic. Now, what I want you to know about David Foster Wallace is that he is actually an atheist. And uh, he is a Pulitzer-nominated author. And he gave a commencement speech at Kenyon College titled, interestingly enough, This is Water. And in his speech, he says this, There is no such thing as not worshiping. This is an atheist talking. There's no such thing as not worshiping. Everybody worships. The only choice we get is what to worship. If you worship money and things, if they are where you find real meaning in life, then you will never feel like you have enough. Worship your own body and beauty and you will always feel ugly. And when time and age start showing, you will die a million small deaths before your life's end. Worship power and you will end up feeling weak and afraid. And you will need ever more power over others to numb you to your own fear. Worship your intellect being seen as smart. You will end up feeling like a fraud, always on the verge of being found out. See, the things that we worship, they are ruthless gods when we fail them. There's only one who does not punish you and shame you when you fail him. And it's this one who is standing right before this Samaritan woman at the well. The only God who doesn't punish you when you fail him. Who doesn't shame you for your failure. Who offers grace to you, to any who are his. And we see in verse 20, verse 20 always seemed kind of disjointed to me. Almost like the woman's trying to change the subject. (laughs) Jesus just pointed out to her uh, that he knows that she's had five husbands. And she's like, "Mm, let's see you're a prophet. Let's talk about something else. 
Let's have a, a talk about worship. But the thing is, she's really not changing the subject. Because her issue is a worship issue. She wants to talk about, hey, you say the temple is over, is over there in Jerusalem. We think it's on our mountain over here. But, but what she doesn't realize is that the temple is actually standing in front of her. That's what we think happens at Advent, that God comes and dwells with us, God with us. Jesus calls his own body later in the book of John a temple, the temple. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. See, God has actually come down in the flesh with skin on, and he's standing before her. And he tells her the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Do you hear that? God is actually seeking. This woman is seeking all kinds of things to fill the hole in her life, to find satisfaction. And Paul tells us that none of us seek for God, for the true God. But the good news in this passage is that we see Jesus telling her that the Father is seeking people to worship him. And this is second point, Jesus' response to her. Jesus actually pursues her. He crosses racial boundaries. He crosses cultural barriers. He would go up and start talking to a woman. He crosses moral barriers. This person who would be seen by everyone around her as dirty and unapproachable. He crosses all kinds of boundaries because the good news of the gospel is that while no one seeks for God, God in his grace seeks after sinners. And this woman is giving us a picture of the kind of people that God is pursuing. And, and I do think that John is, he's doing some comparison and contrast with a character that we see in John chapter 3, the beginning of John 3. This is the beginning of John 4. It's this guy named Nicodemus, who we would expect to be the kind of person that Jesus would pursue. And John tells us all these details about Nicodemus that are the opposite of this woman. Let me tell you a couple. First, Nicodemus is a dude. She is not. She's a woman. Second, Nicodemus has a name. She's a no name. She's a nobody. Nicodemus comes to Jesus in nighttime, in, in, in darkness. Jesus and this woman interact in the middle of the day, in the bright sun. This woman her spiritual resume is terrible. She's got jacked up theology. And she doesn't, she has no idea who Jesus is. Nicodemus has great theology. He is a Pharisee. He's a teacher. And he actually has a clue about who Jesus is. He comes up to Jesus and says, I, we know that you're a good teacher. We know that you're a teacher. And yet... What is so interesting in that comparison and contrast is that another detail that we see is that Nicodemus, Nicodemus is the one approaching Jesus. But Jesus is the one approaching this woman. Jesus is seeking out her. And another interesting, another interesting detail between these two is Nicodemus leaves his interaction kind of confused with Jesus. And there's hope for Nicodemus at the end of, of the book of John. We see that Nicodemus is with God's people, and he's helping bury Jesus' body. Nicodemus does seem to put his faith in the Lord Jesus. But the woman in this story, unlike Nicodemus, does not leave confused about who Jesus is. In fact, Jesus 
in this interaction, it's the first time that he tells anybody in the book of John that he's the Messiah. No one gets to hear it before this woman. Now, what do you think John is trying to get us to see? That this is the kind of people that God is pursuing. That God is pursuing people who do not have their act together. That God is pursuing people who are a mess, who find themselves alone and afraid in their shame. This is the kind of people that God wants to pursue. And so Jesus walks right up to her at this well. At the well, it's where Jesus has to meet her. Did you see that in verse 3? He had to go to Samaria. If you look at a map of where Jesus was going, in, in, in verse 3 it says um, that he left Judea and departed for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. If you look at a map, it's like, no, he didn't. He didn't have to go to Samaria. Like, Judea, Galilee, Samaria. He didn't have to go to Samaria. He had to go to Samaria to meet this woman at this well, the place where every single day, maybe where no, no other hour or moment in the day where she would be more reminded of just how alone and unwanted she was, that's where Jesus has to meet her, right there. Because that's where Jesus wants to meet all of us, at the place where we feel most ashamed of ourselves, at the place where we feel most alone and most unwanted, that is where God wants to meet you. And what we see is that this is just the kind of bride that Jesus wants for himself. There is wedding imagery used all throughout the book of John. The first miracle in the book of John that Jesus does he brings wine to the reception. He fixes the feast. He shows himself to be the true bridegroom. And then in the next chapter of John, John 3, John the Baptist, when asked if he is the Christ, says, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. He's saying, I'm not the bridegroom, but there is a bridegroom. And it's Jesus. But it begs the question, okay, so... If he's the bridegroom, what's his bride like? Who does he walk right up to? Who does he walk right up to and say, I am the Messiah? And friends, the opening line that Jesus uses to meet this woman, it is steeped in Old Testament romance stories. All throughout the Old Testament, we see that there are, that there are heroes of the Old Testament who meet their bride at a well. Isaac meets his bride at a well. Moses meets his bride at a well. And funny enough, the name of this well is Jacob's well. Guess where he met his bride? At a well. Listen to Genesis 29. When Jacob meets Rachel, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. Now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. How's that for an opening move? Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Rachel, Jacob loved Rachel, and he said to her father, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. Jacob meets beautiful Rachel at a well, and he's willing to work seven years for her. And now, years later, the Samaritan woman is at Jacob's well, the same well, and up walks God in the flesh, Jesus, and he begins to pursue her and go to work 
in her life. And the beauty of this is what we see is that you don't have to be beautiful like Rachel. You don't have to have a resume like Nicodemus for God to pursue you. The good news of the Bible is that Jesus doesn't just come for the spiritual Cinderella's. He comes for the ugly stepsisters. He comes for the ugly stepsisters like me and like you. He comes for the outcast, for the sinner, for the mess. And if you don't think that's you, consider again what Romans 3 says. They have become worthless. No one does good. No, not even one. Jesus knows. He knows the truth about us. And the beauty of that, that he knows everything about us, which is also a terror, that he knows everything about us. But the beauty of that is that he wants to help you see that the real you can be known and loved. And he's demonstrating this to us in this passage. There's a book called Hide or Seek uh, where the author John Freeman tells a story about a boy named Sam who was 10 years old. Uh, Sam's dad uh, was a man named John who was having a Super Bowl party, invited his whole family over. Uh, John's brother, Sam's uncle, needed to hop on their computer upstairs to check his email. And so John directed him to go upstairs, use the playroom, computer, and get your email. And he clicked on the web browser to begin typing in a link. And all of the internet history just poured down from that web browser. And all of these illicit websites were listed right there. So the uncle went down showed this to his brother, John, who knew the only other person who used that computer was his 10-year-old Sam. So after the party was over, John cleans everything up, tucks the other kids into bed, and then sits Sam down, and he just asks him, son, be honest. Are you going to these websites? And finally, after denial and denial and denial, the little boy admits it and just begins to weep and comes apart. And Sam's father, rather than shouting or getting angry or shaming him, he pulls his little boy into his lap and holds him like a baby and he weeps with him. And Sam spends the next hours weeping and just talking with his dad. And in a letter describing the story, listen to how... John, the father, describes it. The hour was now 2 a.m. We were both beat and we were still embracing. Instead of disappointment and anger, instead of disappointment and anger, I felt relief and a deeper love for my son who was almost asleep in my arms. Once I placed him in his bed, he fell asleep and subsequently woke several times during the next hour, calling out my name to discuss and confess more. Eventually, he got everything off his chest and finally fell asleep. Friends, that is a picture of God. That is a picture of Jesus. He wants to know all of you. The place where he wants to meet you is the place where you feel most ashamed, where you want to most hide. And the reason that he wants to meet you there is so that you can really experience just how gracious and loving he is for sinners who would come to him by faith alone. Jesus is not grossed out or repulsed by your sin. He will meet you in your pornography addiction. 
He will meet you in your eating disorder. He will meet you in your alcoholism. He will meet you in your cheating. Whatever well you've gone to that keeps leaving you thirsty, he'll meet you there and give you something that will finally satisfy. He will give you himself. So what? Last point. Imagine how that little boy must have felt to be fully, finally known and loved by his father. Imagine the relief. Imagine the joy. Imagine the satisfaction. Friends, that is what I want for you. When she asks for water, this woman in verse 15, and Jesus responds by saying, go call your husbands. He's not being mean. It can kind of read like, oh, you want water? Go call your husbands. Oh, that's right. You have had five, and the one you're with now isn't even your husband. Boom. He's not doing that. What he's doing is he's drawing her out. Let's talk about the whole truth of who you are. Let's talk about the whole truth of who you are. And I want you to see, again, this is, I think this is beautiful. There's been five men that she's with. And now there's a, five husbands. Now there's a sixth man that she is with who's not her husband. And all throughout the book of John, John is playing with the number seven, which is the, the Hebrew number of perfection and wholeness. All these wells that have left her thirsty. Five husbands, six men she's with is not her husband, and it begs the question, is there another? And up walks the seventh man, Jesus. The one who will finally and fully satisfy. And he's trying to draw out all the honesty about herself so that she can see that he is actually for her because... The reason, we can, the reason, friends, that we can be honest with Jesus about ourselves is because on the cross, Jesus took on all the honest things about us and became an outcast to God so that you wouldn't be. Jesus became an outcast so that you could be reconciled to God for eternity. And friends, this belief creates a pathway to vulnerability and relationships. I mean, verse 29, think about how she leaves. She leaves, she goes back to her village, and she says, come and see a man who told me all that I ever did. That's a terrifying person. If someone came up to me and was like, come see a man who told he'll tell you everything you ever did. He knows it all. I'd be like, I don't know if I want to meet him. Might stay away from him. Why would you want to go see a man who knows all that you ever did? You would only want to do that if he would also show you grace in the midst of that. And then that's really somebody you would want to meet. Somebody who knows all that you ever did and wants to meet you in grace. Man, I meant to say this at the beginning of my sermon, but I want to send you guys greetings and love from Christ the King Press. We are so excited. I'm so excited. Your brothers and sisters at Christ the King are so excited and thankful and grateful for what the Lord is doing through this church and through y'all. And I can't wait to see what he is going to do with this church. And my hope for you is that passages like John 4 would be an encouragement to you as y'all grow in community to be real with each other. To, to all recognize, hey, each, none of us have sought after God. And if any, of us, if any of us are Christians, it's because he sought after us and he's met us at our well where we were most ashamed. And so because of that, we don't have to try to impress each other. We can be real with each other and love each other and show grace to each other. May Advent be a church that is a beacon of light and grace and hope in this very dark world. I'm so grateful that God is at work in and through you all. 
And man, I just want you to know that your, your church brothers and sisters are praying for you guys and cheering you on and urging you on to do that work. Not on your own, but, but through God's help and for all of his glory. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that we can call you Father. We thank you that you know us and that you are so committed to saving us that you sent your precious son who willingly purchased us with his life and rose victorious from the grave so that in him, in Jesus, our Savior, Lord, and King, we might find the water that will never leave us thirsty again. Lord, we pray that we would drink deeply from him by the power of your spirit now. Amen. Amen.